And here with our eyes open, with our hands tender to serve the Lord, and with our hearts prepared, um, I invite you to join me in reading God's Word together. Um, this is The Devil Made Me Do It, Part 2, the second half of this first question in our Half-Truths series. Now, last week, um, we read both of these same texts, but there's a focus shift that will happen. Last week, we read a longer section of James chapter 1 and just one verse from 1 Peter 5, 8. Um, this week, we're going to read the longer section of 1 Peter 5 and make that our, our main focal point, but, but we're still holding on to what we read in James. This is um, from the series opener, The Wheel, where we take Scripture, but we try to hold all of Scripture together. And through learning how Scripture interprets Scripture, when the Bible talks about the same topic more than once, how do we hold that all together so that we build within ourselves uh, understanding of sound doctrine, that, that we seek good theology, that we can read each verse well and in context, and that we understand the greater picture of the Scriptures that is before us. And so we're going to try on a f uh, during a few of these questions through the fall series of half-truths as we seek to to peel back the half-truth for the whole truth that it might be hiding. We're going to read one or two different texts at a time. So we'll first be reading 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, and then we're just going to hold on to the passage in James, just reading verses 13 through 15 this week. So before we come to the reading of God's Word together, let's pray. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. So we ask you by the power of the Holy Spirit to show us the way. We pray that you speak the truth into our hearts and that you lead us in ways that lead to life, life that is full and abundant and good, life according to your wisdom and not according to our wisdom. So, Lord, as we confront maybe the half-truths that, that hide the whole truth as a facade, Lord, help us to peel back those layers and to read your whole truths together. By the power of your Holy Spirit, speak into our hearts, O Lord. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind or self-control, depending on your translation. Just hold on to that for now. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. As we may be heard in 1 Peter 5, um, that this is about humbling ourselves before God, a reminder of the devil, 
And then a reminder again, a focus towards God's glory, to giving God glory in all things. And now we're going to turn back to our focus text in James chapter 1 from last week, just reading the reminder um, with the simple question of who is responsible for our actions? Can we say in good conscience, the devil made me do it? Let's read together as a reminder, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Their own evil desire and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the core principles from self-defense that I was taught from, from the first day, the first week, the first month that I was in martial arts was this. You cannot make anyone do anything. It's a very empowering statement, isn't it? You can't make anyone do anything. But the caveat is this. But you can make them want to. Consider how maybe we played this out in a, in a self-defense role. You can't make anyone do anything. You don't have telepathy that you can enter into someone's mind and make them make a different choice. You can't stop someone from attacking you. You can't just freeze their brain and make them go away. But you can make them want to. Now, with a bunch of black belts to say, you can't make anyone do anything, but you can make them want to, that often takes the form of, you can't make anyone leave you alone, but you can break their collarbone with your elbow, and that will make them want to leave you alone. It's a question of motivation and emotion. Well, you can't make anyone do anything but you can make them want to. Sometimes you can make someone want to with your words of telling them that you need to back off. Sometimes it requires action, and sometimes you can make someone not want to mess with you because, well, you've made yourself hard to find, hard to get to. I carried that with me through all of the times of, of training, and also it's still something in teaching self people. You can't make anyone do anything, but you can make them want to do something. You can make them want to leave you alone. I, I use that phrase today as we go to week two of the devil made me do it, because what we're trying to hold in tension is that we do not overestimate or give too much credit to the devil, that we paint ourselves as the helpless victims of an all-powerful devil and forget that, no, 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 we belong to Jesus Christ, the one who is victorious over sin and death in the grave, and it is God who is sovereign. We're going to hold on to the reality that there is this devil that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but also that our choices are our own. To think that the devil can't make you do anything. You belong to Jesus. The devil can't make you do anything, but the devil's best work might be in making you want to do something. 
And I know this puts a lot of ownership on ourselves, and, and we're going to decrypt that a little bit today, but part of the reason that we hold on to that text from James this week is that we don't get to use the devil made me do it as a viable excuse. And even when we do think of the devil being at work, James almost gives a reminder that the devil might not have to work as hard as we'd like to think. Each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. We already have the, the primer and the fuel to be led astray. And it just might be a little bit of a nudge, a twisted truth turning into a mistruth that will lead us astray, that we might do exactly what we want to do, and the devil might have some work in that. But rather, holding on to some of our own autonomy, we're responsible for our decisions, for our actions, but there is still something to be aware of. And that we don't do ourselves a good service of, of reading the Bible as a whole if we pretend that the devil doesn't exist. What we do hold on to is that the devil has been defeated on the cross and that we are not going to live as if that hasn't happened. First Peter tells us to be alert and of sober mind or self-controlled depending on either your translation or even the version of translation that you have. Be alert and of sober mind or, or be self-controlled. Be aware of your own desires. Be aware of what's going on in your own heart before you say, well, the devil made me do it or I, didn't have, I never stood a chance or there is no devil. I did what I wanted. But even in what we read, we start at verse 6. Because this passage doesn't start with the devil. To read only 1 Peter 5.8 by itself makes it seem kind of scary. But it starts with humbling ourselves before God. And that's why as, as Reformed Christians, we want to read Scripture with a God-centered lens. It starts with humbling ourselves before God. Not that we might lift ourselves up, but verse 6, that He may lift us up in due time. And that in seasons of stress, when we're vulnerable, that we cast all our anxiety on Jesus. And that Jesus does not shame us for being anxious. Jesus does not hold it against us that we have times of stress. But that we are called to cast our anxiety on Jesus, not so that he can shame us, but because he cares for you. Holding on to that it starts with God. Then we move to this, be alert and of sober mind. And I would say be alert, but not paranoid. Be alert and aware, but not too eager to look under every rock for a devil so that we can overemphasize or oversell the devil's influence. And I will say the imagery that I have in my mind of that is someone, some of you strange people here who go into the woods and look under rocks and logs looking for snakes. I still will just never understand why. And so help me, Bradenden Blaker, if you ever try to throw another snake at me, something will happen to you. <laughs> and the devil will not make me do it. Because, friends, we do have some desire for vengeance in our own hearts, and that's on us. But we are called to be alert, not to be 
ignorant that, that there is this devil, the adversary, who, who probably makes us want to do certain things. Do you ever have those moments where you've acted out of character, where you have either lashed out at someone or responded or reacted in a way you didn't want to? You kind of met your breaking point. Be alert of those times when you are being pushed to act out of character because it never is a good thing and you always have to backtrack on it. Be alert but not paranoid. Consider what paranoia looks like in an easy-to-look-at easy historical context, the Salem witch trials. This was an instance where everyone was saying, the devil did this, the devil did that. And it was just some of these were random things. If you've ever done reading of the Salem witch trials, there was things like a wagon wheel broke in front of the church, and there was a woman across the road who watched it happen. And they thought for sure the devil worked through her, that she broke the wagon wheel. That's just weird superstition. Someone was sewing a sleeve into a shirt, and it wasn't fitting correctly. And they heard someone laugh and assumed that the devil was up to the, up to the work of that. This is where being alert takes on being paranoid. And then our superstition takes over. And as I can only say, it's okay to be a little stitious, but not superstitious. But some of what we do, where we do hold on to alert without being paranoid, is be careful of the meaning that we try to make in situations, especially ones that we don't understand. When any event that evokes stress happens, we experience thoughts and feelings, and as we experience thoughts and feelings, our minds automatically try to make meaning of it because we want to make sense of things. And when things happen that don't make sense or seem random, we seek to ascribe meaning. And that's true of humanity across the board. Every culture throughout history has a personification of the devil, an idea of a spirit who is working against us. And sometimes we just have to have somewhere to put that. We don't know why this is happening. Ever feel like somebody's working against you? There is something to be aware of with a devil to be alert of, but not in the ways that make us paranoid. I do believe that the devil was at work in Salem, but not in the wagon wheels breaking or the sleeves not fitting or in any of the other weird stuff that people made meaning of. What I do believe the devil was at work in the Salem witch trials was in whispering accusations, was making people distrustful, and the devil's oldest trick in the book all the way back to Genesis 3, placing blame and needing someone to blame, and finding it, because it feels better when we have someone to blame, someone to scapegoat, someone to say, this is your doing, this is your fault. A community then feeds off of all of that stress and paranoia, and becomes not a community, but a whole bunch of people that are watching their backs. That is fine work of the devil, not in the things that happened, but in the ways that the people reacted. Breaking down trust. Sowing seeds of fear and discord. Sowing division and factions. Those words are listed in Galatians as the sinful desires before we get to the fruit of the Spirit. So, don't be paranoid, but be alert. Be mindful, and using James maybe as a template of that, being mindful of what's already in our hearts when things happen, how quick we are to look for someone to blame. 
but also to be of, of sober mind with this or self-controlled. And I would say just as if we say be alert but not paranoid, be sober-minded and self-controlled, but don't be nonchalant. Don't take a, a passive view of what might be happening around you. And some of this just comes into not saying that there's nothing that the devil do, does or that there might be times where a mistruth has taken root or that something that's been said has been taken too far or out of context. But to not turn that into, well, the devil doesn't do anything anymore or to ascribe the devil only works in this way or that way. Now, we're going to get a little bit more into ascribing meaning when we get to everything happens for a reason, part one and part two. But the reason that there should be some caution on what meaning we make and on how we balance being alert and self-controlled, the self-control is on us. It's not devil-controlled. It's self-controlled. Is because the meaning that we make can often be flawed. Put differently... Uh, a quote that you'll see every now and then, not from the Bible, but just a, a humorous anecdote in our culture is, knowing that something is going to hurt and doing it anyway is the definition of courage. Knowing that something is going to hurt and doing it anyway is the definition of courage. It is also the definition of stupidity, and that's why life is hard. What meaning do you ascribe where if you are headed to church and, or headed to an interview, perhaps, and you're, the spring on your garage door breaks, and so that's one thing that sets you back. And then you get a flat tire, and then something else goes wrong along the way, and you hit every light red. Is it the devil trying to stop you from getting somewhere, or is it God trying to get your attention? Friends, if we read Scripture in its whole, one thing that we're cautioned of is we do not always accurately make meaning of the events around us looking no further than the disciples asking Jesus, Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. You're trying to ascribe the wrong meaning. To know how the devil does work is part of how we read Scripture well. And the best case example is the temptation of Jesus, where we see that the devil tempts with Scripture to know that, that the devil might be afraid of Scripture, but also knows it really well and kind of likes it for the ways that it can be twisted and misused, where a whole truth that is the gospel that, that Jesus is trying to speak to us might get turned into a half-truth so that we can walk away with something not helpful, so that maybe we can sow seeds of division and accusation and blame instead of compassion, kindness, humility, self-control, and gentleness. The devil tempts with Scripture, likes to twist things from a truth to a half-truth. And of course, Jesus is the model of knowing Scripture better, to know to not settle for a half-truth or to let the Bible be used in an, an unhelpful or harmful way. And it ends with basically the devil being told to take a hike, and he does take a hike, but waits for another opportune moment. I think that's some of what we need to be most cautious of, is that the devil will wait for opportune moments 
to lead us astray, to act out of character, but that that should not make us think that the devil is somehow more in charge than God. The reason we have the baptismal font up here today is to remember one of the words that we use, one of the lines from the liturgy that we use every single time we have a baptism. And it's one of the questions that we share together. And the question at the baptismal font is, do you renounce sin and the power of evil in your life and in the world? And what is our response? We do. We renounce sin and the power of evil in our life and in the world. That is our moment where in our own lives we're reminded and at the baptism of a little one, we say, devil, you have no power here. Your power and evil and influence are not what has dominion and sovereignty over this child or over me. We renounce that. And renounce is kind of an old school word, but some of those old school words just deliver in a way that we hold on to the truth of renouncing, of casting out, of saying, nope, no room for evil, sin, or those powers in our lives or in the world. But the lies might remain. The desire to make us act out of character, the, the twisting of truth, the, the making us want to do something will remain. My parents have good friends who uh, started attending their church, and they said, our whole week will go fine, and then something always goes wrong on Sunday morning. And so they stopped going, because once they stopped going, the weird things stopped happening. I'm cautious of some of the meaning that make, make me... I'm cautious of some of the meaning-making that can happen there. Thank you for your sympathy. It's been a long week. But that might be a moment where did the devil crawl into someone's car and hotwire it? That makes me think more of the, the film classic Gremlins than how I read the devil in Scripture. But the meaning-making, the whisper in our ear, it might not be that the devil can make you not go to church, but the devil might make you want to not go to church. The devil might make you read into a situation and say, well, that's just not worth it anymore. The cost is too high. Something always goes wrong when I try to do that. And maybe if I don't do that, it will stop. Have you ever felt most interrupted when you're trying to just read your Bible for like 10 minutes? The devil can't make you stop reading your Bible, but the devil might try to make you want to. Even when we renounce sin and the power of evil in the world, even when we re renounce the devil, there might be some residual influence and some opportune moments being sought out. Think of how people who have hurt us, even though they might not be in our lives anymore, their influence might remain. Someone who has harmed us, we still have memories of their harm. Someone who has cut us down, we still hold on to some of that pain. Someone who has lied to us, well, they may be out of our lives, but maybe the lies still echo in our soul every now and then. That's part of why the song um, for the offertory today is the reminder of you say, I'm enough. The pain that we might feel, the ways in which we've been hurt, that has a residual effect on us. It might lead us to believe that we're not enough, that 
we're not useful, that, that we are not in control, that we're alone, that no one cares for us, that no one's watching out for us, that everyone's out to get us, that, that we're just worthless, that we're stupid. All of those lies can be whispered back at us. But that's not the whole truth of who we are in God's eyes. It's a lie or a half-truth thrown at us. But friends, even when someone is gone, even if we renounce sin and the power of evil in our life and in the world, there's residual effect. But I want to remind us today with some good news that that is a two-way street. That when people we love are no longer with us, that their residual effect also still remains. That someone who spoke truth and wisdom into your life, what they said to you should still also be carried in your life heart. So then, going back to James, holding intention, 1 Peter 5, what is it that's in your desires? What is it that's maybe your easiest way of being tempted? And what is it that we need to focus on instead? Scripture doesn't spend a lot of time on the devil. There's reminders, but it's always sandwiched between reminders that, that God is the one who we are seeking and putting our focus on. Even in James, where James does mention the devil, it's James 4-7, and we often see even on uh, uh, bumper stickers or magnets or other, you know, um, merchandise, uh, things like resist the devil. But the whole verse is submit to the Lord your God and then resist the devil. It always starts and ends with God. And so it should be with us. Our meaning-making should start with what is God up to? To be aware that maybe there's some resistance from the devil being at work, but the starting point and the ending point is what is God up to in your life? What is God up to in the world? And what is God calling you to in the midst of it all? so that we do not see ourselves as helpless victims of the all-powerful devil or as people who don't think that the devil is up to anything at all, but that we can see the devil as up to something and remember that a lot of it is up not to us, but to God. Our view of spiritual warfare is probably just as influenced by Ted Decker novels as it is by Scripture. And that's actually nothing against the books like The Oath or The Visitation or This Present Darkness. But one thing to remember is that those are works of fiction and they're made with really compelling plots with lots of meaning making because they needed to be good books to sell a lot of copies. But that so much of the emphasis on who does what in Scripture comes back to us. Now, the devil is up to something. And maybe a case example that's a little bit closer to home than the Salem witch trials or the reminder that you, you cannot vanquish your demons if you're still enjoying their company, is to wonder, when things go wrong, what's your quickest frame of mind? I think about um, something that has happened every now and then here over uh, the last few weeks, and, it, and it's involved our sound system, that there's some gremlin, there's something that's worked against us. We heard it, just a flicker of it when CJ was speaking, but you know, we've all noticed this, right? Ever since we had to update everything, it's just been kind of this weird puzzle for us to decrypt. One thing that we said at the funeral on Friday was, God is more faithful than technology. Amen? Amen. 
I don't know if I would ascribe the same active agency to the devil on doing just that. Once again, if someone's car breaks down and you find out they haven't changed their oil in 15,000 miles, that wasn't the devil. That was human stupidity. Sometimes we have puzzles to decrypt, but where I do think the devil will do the devil's best work is maybe not in the hardware, but in what gets inside our head. Because I think the devil might want us to miss out on something or to distract us. To think that there might be a word on a Sunday morning or at a funeral service that someone really needs to hear. And a great and useful distraction is to instead get us so focused on the sound and what's going wrong and the devil's favorite tactic, who to blame, whose fault is this, can we cross our arms and point our fingers at Ross and Ross is like, I'm trying to fix it. So far, so good. We tried something new today. So far, so good. But does the devil not do those things but get very involved in them? Where when something mechanically goes wrong, it's an opportune moment to take our focus away or to frustrate us. Or 10 minutes goes by and we realize we've been thinking about the sound system the whole time and and we can't even catch up on what did we just miss? The phrase, speak of the devil, was a topic of conversation um, with a couple elders and uh, Aaron, um, uh, pastor intern Aaron, uh, last week. And I was given a tip by Rick Skur, and then I had to do a little bit more reading. The phrase, speak of the devil and he shall appear, we say that more when people walk into a conversation, and that literally was said to me this week, and I don't know why it's always said to pastors, like when we walk up and people stop talking. I don't want to take it personally. I just think it's kind of funny. Like, sorry, if you didn't want to say it in front of me. Speak of the devil and he shall appear. We talk about it when people are eavesdroppers, when like you're talking about someone and they just walk in. Speak of the devil. But it used to be actually the the phrase in its origin was speak of the devil and he is presently at your elbow. Meaning focus so much on what the devil is doing and you start to see the devil everywhere. You think that's a distraction? You think that could fill you with fear, pressure, and anxiety? A distraction from we're so focused on the devil at our elbow that we forget about the God who lives over us and as Ephesians puts it, is in us and through us? Speak of the devil and he shall appear. So don't not, don't ignore the devil, but don't give so much credit that we take back our renouncing of the devil. And be aware, maybe of the hardware things that goes wrong. Things do seem to work against us sometimes, but what meaning do we make? Can we always say for sure this was the devil, this was God? Was it courage or stupidity to know something was going to hurt and do it anyway? But to be aware of what might you be missing out on? What might the posture of your heart been turned toward or against someone? Instead of something. Friends, there are hate crimes that occur. I think this is some of the devil's work. I don't think people can say that the devil made them do it. That has not been a viable excuse since the Nuremberg trials following World War II. When people do horrible things, they cannot say the devil or some other higher power made them do it. And we don't hear the devil made me do it as often as we unfortunately hear God told me to do it. My senior year of high school, 
at Valparaiso High School, a student took a machete to his school to attack sinners because God told him to. God absolutely did not tell him to do that. Neither did the devil. But the cause and effect that we can trace through this is that hate crimes are almost never preceded or never carried out without first hate speech. When we think of ourselves as higher or greater than other people or superior or that others are lesser, this can turn into hate speech and it is a counter to Scripture's truth that at the end of time, in Revelation, it will be every tribe and language and nation and tongue gathered to the throne of Jesus Christ who is Lord over all. Hate crimes might be the devil at work, but not in an override fashion where the devil took control. But the lies perpetuating, lies not being confronted with truth, and even God's name being taken in vain, God being given credit for hurtful and hateful things being done. Hate crimes are preceded by hate speech. The devil, our enemy, exploits vulnerability, exploits ignorance, exploits desperation to make us believe something that doesn't match up with the whole wheel of reading scripture with good theology, with sound doctrine. In Ephesians chapter 5, another very popular verse that people use and is used often in Christian fiction novels is verse chapter, Ephesians 5 verse 27, do not give the devil a foothold. The way this is often conveyed is the devil gets a foothold and builds a, a stronghold and territory in a certain place. And then in Christian fiction, it's usually the job of a protagonist to fight against the devil when a lot of that fight is actually God's fight. We're usually just told to pray a lot. Ephesians 5.27, don't give the devil a foothold. But what's the context of that? It's actually with just our own anger. It's the other popular verse do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Isn't it interesting that something that's so domesticated on one, we use that in premarital counseling all the time. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let that fester and stir within you. Don't let that bitterness build up within you. And that's the context in which we're told, don't give the devil that foothold. The whole section is this, Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning at verse 25, pay attention for what the devil's up to and what our call is. Pay attention to what God is asking in this, not getting paranoid about what the devil's place in it is. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Have we considered that spiritual warfare might sometimes be so simple as being honest and truthful with our neighbor? Continuing, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Friends, even that portion leads us to generosity. We go from stealing to not stealing to working so that we can be generous and share with those in need. Because Jesus asked us to take care of those in need. 
Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Did you hear that in what CJ shared with Barnabas? Building others up according to their needs, meeting them where they are? Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed. You were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. This is not as exciting to imagine spiritual warfare as we might want to. To think of it as being kind and compassionate to one another, to just getting rid of the parts of our heart that are a little bit bitter, to check ourselves when we're angry, to keep ourselves from unwholesome talk or slander, to think that this is part of spiritual warfare, to put off falsehood, to not take part in hazing the new person, to speak truth, to forgive, to offer apologies. Friends, this actually is a certain type of spiritual warfare to take part in because our world in its current moment is not seeking to be very kind and compassionate to one another. Rather, we really like to find the devil in someone else and we personify other people as the devil, as the Nationally speaking, the cosmic view of the devil existing has faded. We've found the devil in other people, and it's anyone who disagrees with us. Verse 32 of Ephesians 5, Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other just as in Christ in God forgave you. So there is a devil. And the devil's not in charge. The devil likes half-truths but doesn't have the corner on whole-truths. And we are called to fight against principalities and powers. But what does that look like? In closing, I share one story. This is actually a, um, not from the Reformed Church, but a, a, a positive note of some of our brothers and sisters in a different part of the U.S. In Garland, Texas, at a Baptist church, which we have some maybe doctrinal differences that hopefully being kind and compassionate we could chat through. They sought to fight against principalities and powers in a way that you would not expect a Baptist church in Texas to do. Keith Stewart of Spring Creek Church became more and more aware of the predatorial nature of the quick cash and uh, cash advance and payday loan institutions in his city and how they were taking advantage of desperate people and making them more desperate. And they began to wonder if this is where some of the crime in the city was coming from because we have a system that is making people desperate all the time. And so a group of churches gathered together to lobby against places that were charging 300% to 900% payday loans. That's a principality and a power of evil that's preying on desperation. And the church should stand up against such things and say, we have no room for that here. And so Stuart and others actually put some of these places out of business. They struck back against principalities and powers. They fought back against ways in which I think the devil was at work, in which people's desperation was preyed upon for profit. And the effects on the community 
more sustainable ways of addressing poverty, better ways of helping people with budget counseling when they're not stuck underneath a burden that no one would be able to carry. Friends, there's a certain type of fighting back against principalities and powers that might not be as fictitious or exciting, but is just as real and should fill us with hope of what the impact that we can have as a church will be. May the God of grace, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, may the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while against this adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, Christ himself will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we focus on you because you are our master. And there's all kinds of things in this world that will distract us from you, that will tell us not to follow you, that will discourage us to say our efforts of following you are worthless, futile, or misguided. God, we reject that. But help us to seek in the fullness of truth ways to follow you faithfully, to make a difference in the lives of those in our community, and to support the mission both locally and globally around the world of your kingdom purposes. God, help us to not be distracted or lied to or to believe the lies that we might whisper to ourselves, 